Welcome to the Living Faith Missionary Church Podcast. You're about to listen to a message from Pastor Chris Starn, Senior Pastor at Living Faith in Yoder, Indiana. It is our prayer that this message is an encouragement and a blessing to your life. Uh, Opening your Bibles with me, if you will, to the book of Isaiah. We're in the 33rd chapter of Isaiah. And our verses today are going to give us some insight Give us a a couple glimpses of both heaven and hell. In verse 14 of this chapter, we find find our glimpse of hell. It says, The sinners in Zion are, are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with a consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with an everlasting burnings? We get this idea of fire, of burning. Who could, who, who could be in the presence of God? We deserve, we all deserve to be apart from God in hell. But then in verse 17, we get this glimpse of heaven. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see the land that stretches afar. You know, two very interesting facts about heaven and hell is that it is not possible to overstate the terror of hell. No matter, we can't, nothing we can explain would be saying, oh, you've gone too far. But in the same way, there's no possible way to overstate the joys of heaven. What also we're going to see in these verses is we're going to see the amazing grace of God in dealing with his people who have wandered away from him, who through all these things in their lives, they have have been denying him, they've been doing it their own way, and they finally get to this point where they've lost all hope. How does God deal with that? The Israelites, like many of us today, have have wandered, and and they've... You know, they've wandered from what God has told them. They were God's chosen people. They, they should have known better. He's telling them, I'm going to take care of this. And what do they do? They still try to do their, old, their own way. We've talked about this over the last few weeks. You know, they sent an MS, they sent a group to, to Egypt to try to get some help. You know, they, they've, they've, they've actually taken money out of places and they've given it to the Assyrians, trying to buy them off. And during this, God's standing there saying, did I not tell you I'm going to take care of this? See, we, as humans, I think we have this problem with surrendering to God. We don't want to, and I don't believe it's just a guy thing. I mean, I don't like surrendering at all. But we don't like surrendering to God. We don't like to admit that we can't do it on our own. We, we, wanna, we just want to be that strong person who can do it all on our own. Be tough. But the amazing thing in that, when I was thinking about that this week, is, you know, as much as I struggle with not surrendering to God, I find it very easy to surrender to my own fleshly desires. If I did not control myself, I would find it easier to go and eat a whole box of donuts than it would be for me to sit down and pray. Be honest with you. Now, granted, I sit down and I pray, but I'm saying that there's, there's something about the desires of the flesh, sin, that, that seems to be easier to give into than it is to give into God. And I think that's just a human, human trait that we have. Part of the flaw, part of the fall of, 
of Adam and Eve. But see, the great thing about that, the great thing about God is the fact that even in that, even when there's those crazy things that we're thinking about in our lives where it's so easy to give in to sin, but it's hard to give in to God, He still forgives us. He still has grace. He still has mercy for us. See, when, when, when we step, when, when we become a believer in Christ and we, we start to follow Him, and then we, we step aside, we step away from Him and His ways, He calls us. He he desires us to come back. He wants us to repent, to return to him. But what do we do? Many times, we just continue down that path. And we progressively get further and further away from him. So then what happens is the Holy Spirit will come to us. And almost sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes I think the Holy Spirit gets in my face. Because he has to. He really, I don't mean he's, angry. I mean, he, he does things that make me get, get my attention, makes me see, oh, wait a minute, I need to rethink this, because he's telling me something. And he tries to get us to see the folly of our ways, our folly of turning from God. And we see that throughout Isaiah. We see that's what God's doing. These things fail. It doesn't, you know, they try this, it doesn't work. It's like, is it, God's like, told you. I'll send Isaiah to you. Isaiah's going to tell you some things. And what happens? They do the same thing again. But even then, we are reluctant to repent. Because what we're afraid of, I think, is we're afraid that God's going to discipline us. You know what happens. You, you As a child, you do something wrong. And, and even if you get it right, you right the wrong that you did... You, you, you go to your parents and you admit to it, and chances are you're still going to be in trouble because you still did something you weren't supposed to. So we're, we're, I guess we, we kind of look at God as this father figure sometimes that we're afraid he's going to discipline or we're afraid he's not going to forgive us. Or he's going to reject us for being so foolish to turn from him in the first place. But... He's not going to not forgive us. He's always going to forgive us. Always. See, the reality and the beauty is that God is is just as ready to meet us when when we have wandered and we've spent time away from him and we finally get to the bottom of the pit and we're finally realizing, oh my gosh, I need to go back to God. He's as much ready to accept us and forgive us then as he was when we first walked away. Think of the story of the prodigal son who wandered from his father and was taking care of pigs. And he thought, I'm going to go home and I'm going to be a servant. His father was ready to accept him back into the family from day one to day 101. It didn't matter. So in our verses today, we're going to, these verses are for those of us that have wandered and have trusted in everything else except for God. We've all probably been there. See, we can't use God as this lucky rabbit's foot that, you know, you know, or a four-leaf clover that we can make a wish on or, you know, throw a coin in in a pond. That's not who God is. And expect, we can't expect us to receive his power in that way. But see, 
the great thing about God is that in the mess of our lives, that is where he meets us. He meets us right in the middle of the turmoil. And even though we think it might be too late to turn back to God, in his grace he comes to us and he still saves us. Understand that our, our, our repentance with God is always imperfect. It is imperfect because we're human. We're not perfect. But we can still go back to a practical trust in God. It, it is a step in returning to full salvation in Christ. And that is why I've preached it and I'll keep preaching it till I can't preach anymore. We need to live lives of daily repentance. Understanding who we are to the point where we, are, we are, know what our sins are. We know we're fallen, but we're constantly going to God and saying, okay, God, I know. I'm unworthy of you, but you love me so much. I'm sorry for what I've, anything I've done. Because... When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, part of it was, you know, forgive us our trespasses. It's not a one and done thing. We, we need to live lives of repentance. So let's go to Isaiah. Isaiah 33, starting with verse 1. He says, Ah, you destroyer, who yourselves have not been destroyed, you traitor, whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. What a strange way to start verses that talk about repenting and returning to God. But we got to understand who this was written to Israel. It was written to Judah, the Jerusalem. And the Assyrians were out there. So God is now talking to the Assyrians. He has actually focused his attention outside. We've been reading verses where he's focusing in on Israel and on Judah. Now he's focusing on the rest of the world. He did a little bit we, a couple weeks ago. Now he's really focused. He's talking directly to the Assyrians. They are the double-crossing destroyer. Remember that the, they, 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 they were out there. They were ready to conquer. They were the bullies in the neighborhood. God is addressing the enemy. He's entering into human affairs, which he does from time to time. And why is he doing that? Why is he entering into the affairs of men? It is because they are repenting. You, I don't know if you know the story of Hezekiah. Hezekiah is, is, has been struggling. He's the one who, who, took, who brought everybody in and showed them all of the things. And he, sent, he took money and he, he sent it out there. He, he did everything he can on his own. And so he is about to die. And God extends his life. It's during this time that God actually also extends the life of Judah, of Jerusalem, by taking care of the forces that were outside the city walls. They are repenting. They are finally turning back to God and calling, not just calling him king, but actually treating him as their king. Now we've seen in previous chapters, we talked uh, three weeks ago about woe. You know, when somebody says, woe upon you, it's not woe like a horse, it's a woe. It's a, it's a prophetic warning that you're doing something you're not supposed to do. Now, in this verse, they use the term ah. I'm not sure why, because actually it's the same word in Hebrew. Woe and ah are the same word, but they use ah here. 
It's a warning. You're doing evil. So the same word is being translated as ah. And God now is turning his eyes. He's been saying woes to he's been saying woes to the Israelites, to the Judahites, because remember Israel, the northern kingdom had been taken into captivity. But now he's going to turn it out to Assyria, and he says woe to them because of their wickedness. You've heard the term. What goes around comes around. At least I remember the term. Parents would tell me that. Don't treat people that way because what goes around comes around, which means you do something, it's going to be done back to you. It could happen. And that's what we see here. They're now going to be paid back for what they've been doing, the Assyrians are, for what they've perpetuated onto the world. In Proverbs 26, 27, it says, whoever digs a pit will fall into it. I can testify to that. How many times have I dug a pit and I fall into it myself? And a stone will come back on him who starts rolling. Basically what it's saying is don't do evil. Don't do things wrong to somebody because chances are it's going to come back. It's going to hurt you. So what goes around comes around. It's been around since at least since Proverbs. Because see what happens is God is measuring out everything in human history. I don't know if you know this, but in the book of Enoch, if you study Jewish history, and the Jews believed it and believed that it was canon scripture, but they believed that it was historical. And when he, Enoch goes to heaven, he sees the angels, and they're bringing out books, and they're recording everything that happens on the earth. God measures out all of human history. Ecclesiastes tells us there's a time for everything, a time for every purpose under heaven. There's times for the tyrants to reign. But that rain will end one day and will probably end in destruction, which is a scary thought for us today as a nation. I'm not, I don't see our nation repenting, and the reign of this our nation is going to end, and it will probably end in destruction. If we read forward into Isaiah, we'll see how actually Sennacherib, who was the, the king of Assyria, how his reign is going to end. All the way in Isaiah 37, 38, and it says, And as he was worshiping in the house of Nechrash, his god, Adramelech and Sarezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. All these things that Sennacherib had done to the nations around him came back on him. His own sons killed him. God measures out human history. God is more than able to take care of someone who's doing wickedly. He's more than able to pour out evil back onto their heads. This is why it is God who is supposed to bring vengeance. We are not to take vengeance because God can do a whole lot worse than I can. But... The reason this is all happening, the reason why God is turning to Assyria and saying, you're going to get it, is because the people are repentant. So we're going to talk about repentance. The first thing we got to do is we've got to trust. That's the first step in repentance. If we go to verse 2 of Isaiah 33, it says, O Lord, be gracious to us. See, they, they were turning from what they were doing. They were turning back to God. We wait for you. They didn't want to wait for anybody. They wanted to do it all themselves. Now they're saying that we will wait wait for you. Be our arm every morning, which is what we read this morning for the call to worship, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. 
When you lift your it lift yourself up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, as the locust leap it is left upon. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of our times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. When we repent, we've, we've got to come to this point where we fully trust God only. We, we come to this point where, where we realize there's no other hope but Christ. And in that repentance, we look to God as the only one who can save us. That's what the Israelites are doing. There's no greater place that we can go than to Yahweh. No place. And when we really trust God, we find out that he is there. You know, in the midst of our troubles, what do we do? We wonder, is God really there? Is God, does God even hear me when I cry out? But when we get to that point where we surrender everything to him and realize that we can't do this on our own, we realize, yes, he's there. He's there. And when we trust and respect God enough to give up control of our lives to him, he's going to be stability in our times. I don't know about you, but there are times in my life I need, there are times in my day I need some stability. Because things are crazy. He is our stability. There is no other stability that is going to hold. He's our stability. He's our abundance. He's our wisdom. He's our knowledge. Nothing in this world, no one in this world can give us those treasures. No one can give us the stability that we need. Nobody can give us the true, true treasures and the salvation and the wisdom that we need. Definitely can't do it ourselves. That's for certain. But our first step back to God is to start trusting him. And the second thing we need to do is we need to be broken. Verse 7. This is what it says. It says, Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. They're broken. The highways lie waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There's no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert. And Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. You know, self-salvation makes a whole lot of sense until you try it. And the minute you try it, you start to realize, I can't, I can't do this. I can't save myself. You know, <laughs> under, under dire straits, under, under, even under ideal conditions, we can't save ourselves. We still need God. There's no way possible for us to live well without God. You can't. You can't. Oh, we tell, we tell ourselves we can, and people in the world go about their ways, saying, oh, I do fine without God. Do you? You better think twice about that, because I think life could be better. It's just it's not as bad as it was, but it's still bad. And not to mention, you're thinking short-term, eternally. Whew, that's a whole other story. See, all these places that they've listed, that Isaiah has listed here, were very pleasant places to be. 
But no matter where we are, we need God. My family's from West Virginia. And anybody who knows, knows Almost Heaven, West Virginia. The song by John Denver. Now, you think about that, and when I go to West Virginia, I'm like, yeah, this, is, this, is, this has got to be what heaven is like. But I always forget, it says almost heaven. Even there, you need God. Even in the most beautiful place. I love being in the mountains. I love being at the seashore. Even there, I still need God. It could be the most beautiful place in the world. And to not have God would ultimately be hell. It would be. And being in the most desolate place, you could be in the middle of the desert in the west, Death Valley. But you know, if you have God, it could be heaven. It could. Because see, it's when we are downcast and broken and we're so disappointed with ourselves and how much we have screwed up things in our lives that God is going to enter in. He's going to enter in. Look at verse 10. Because after verse 7 through 9, where he's talking about all these, you know, they're broken. The heroes are crying in the streets. The envoys are weeping because there's no peace. All these places are being destroyed. God says, now I will arise. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. See, God is saying, you, you've, you've finally sunk to your lowest. You, you've been where you're going to be. This is where you're going to finally turn to me. I've been sitting here waiting. Now, now if it was us, what would we say? Well, I've been waiting for you. Where you been? No, that, that's not what God does. God says, I, child, I love you. I've been patiently waiting. Now I'm going to act. And now you're going to see something amazing. He's able to move in our lives at those times because those are the times we are ready for him to help us. Verse 11 says, You conceive chaff. You give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Hear, you who are far off, what I have done. And, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. He's saying, you've made a mess of it. You've, you've made it really bad but watch what I can do. At this time, God is speaking to the Assyrians. He's talking to them because they're far off. But he's also talking about the Assyrians in our lives. We all have them, those things that are constantly pressing upon us. And he speaks their doom. But the doom only happens when we surrender and we allow him to move in our lives. He does this because we finally are admitting that only God can save us. People who deal with addictions, that's it. That's, that, that's their Assyria that's constantly bothering them. And you know, the only way to overcome that is to surrender to God and let God do it. That's hard. It's very hard. Psalm 51.17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. We need to be broken. Our hearts need to be rent to the point where it's almost torn apart. 
And then God will not despise us. He'll save us. In God's way, our sense of failure and our weakness and need is, is where he gives us favor. The world will see us as failures. Oh, look what you've done to your life. You've completely screwed yourself. Isn't, isn't that just like you? you know, they'll tell us everything to bring us down. And God says, yes, you've done those things. I still love you. I created you. I know you better than anybody else. And I knew you were going to do this. I let you do it because you need to learn. Now, I'm here to make it better. If you just trust me, but you have to trust me. Because God sees us as humble and broken at those times. And that's something he can work with. He can't work with somebody who wants to do it all themselves. When we accept Christ, we are admitting that our whole life has been wrong. And as we grow in Christ, we must never leave that idea behind. In our failure, God sees opportunity. And then we get renewal. Isaiah uh, 33, 14 says, The sinners of Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? And who walks righteously and speaks uprightly? Who despises the gain of oppressions? Who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe? Who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil? He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of rocks. His bread will be given to him. His water will be sure. You see, there are, there are two types of people in this world. There are those who are genuinely believers in Christ. And yes, they will stumble, they will fall, they will make mistakes, they will repent, and God will lift them back up again. But then there are those also who call themselves believers or those who don't believe at all. They call themselves believers and they don't believe or they're non-believers at all. So there's either believers or non-believers in Christ. They either follow Christ or they don't. And those that don't follow Christ, who don't really follow Christ, are called the sinners in Zion. The sinners in Zion, he says they are afraid. These sinners or these hypocrites who are either denying Christ or just going through the motions will one day realize their folly. We can sit back and we can say, yeah, we watch this. We see it happening. People realize their mistakes. But for some, it'll be too late. God is a consuming fire. They won't find any refuge in God. And they'll ultimately be destroyed. Because only those that are perfectly righteous in Christ, not on our own, not by our own abilities, will be able to stand in the presence of God. We see in Revelation 6 this picture of God's judgment on the earth and what happens in verse 15. It says, The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. See, they know. They know the truth. They know the folly of their ways. But it's too late. And now they're asking the rocks to kill them so they do not have to face 
the wrath of the Lamb. Not realizing that at the second resurrection, they will have to face the judgment seat of God. Trembling has gripped the sinners in Jerusalem. And one day it will grip the people of the whole world. But those who truly are in Christ will be able to stand in the consuming fire like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Standing in the fire, the fire of Christ, and they will be able to survive. Verse 17 says, Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. That's those who are standing, who are able to stand with the consuming fire of God. And they will see a land that stretches afar. What a promise. Our, our whole reality is going to be reversed. Everything you see, all the evil you see in this world today is going to be completely gone. Today we see corruption, pain, sorrow, the destroyer. One day we're going to see the beauty of Christ face to face. The enemy of our lives and the, the sin that's in our lives that always seems to be able to overpower us is going to be gone. Verse 18 says, Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? Now he switched back to talking about those who are trusting in Christ, who are standing in the consuming fire. You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. We've got to look at the actual context of this. He's telling Judah, you're, you're not even going to see the Syrians anymore. You're not going to hear about them. They're going to be a memory. They're going to be something you can forget about because I'm going to take care of it. And he does, by the way. And actually, the Syrians become nothing more than another dot in history. But I think this also has some forward-looking, as God usually does. He gives us foreshadowings of things in the future. I think that when we are with Christ, we will remember our lives, but we will not remember all the bad things. We won't remember those people who tormented us. We won't remember those people who said things they shouldn't have said about us. We won't remember the people who hurt us, the pain or the corruption in the world. If we jump forward to Isaiah 65... This is why I know the why I think this is because it says here it says because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes for behold I create new heavens and new earth the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind our old troubles the former troubles are forgotten we'll still have memories of this world but they will be cleaned they will be redeemed they will be healed they'll be restored I think that's something that commonly happens in our memories. When, when, we think of, when we think about our lives in the past, we, we kind of get a, a cloudy view of what our lives were, especially when we deal with somebody who's passed away. You, you, you don't always remember all the bad things. You remember the good things. I think that's what's going to happen for us. But for now, Israel is not going to have to worry about Assyria anymore. They're going to be gone. It says in verse 20, Behold Zion, that's Jerusalem, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation. It's been a long time since Jerusalem has been untroubled. But even today they are not untroubled. An immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. 
See, even, even though our lives, for the most part, are good, our lives are still seem to be at times in crisis. But that life's going to be over. We're going to find rest. Not because we've learned to cope with all the things of this world. Oh, no. Because now we're standing in the physical presence of God. God has made all things new. We're experiencing the true peace that comes from God. At that point in time, we get to experience that perfectly. Because now, though, the joy is we get to imperfectly experience God's peace now. When we live in Christ, when we walk with Christ. And this is the heart of Isaiah's message, I think, in these verses, is the church can be transformed into a solid God-trusting people who can face anything with him as our Savior. But we have to put our trust in God. Bad things are going to happen to the church. Bad things are going to happen in our lives, but we still have to trust God. This is where God wants us to be. He wants us to be at that point where we have to trust him. He invites us to be part of it. But we have to surrender our lives to him fully. Verse 21. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. They don't have to worry about being attacked. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Your cords hang loose, they cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. The king, Jesus Christ, he's going to take care of us. No more attack from the evil one, no more temptation. No more, you know, wandering away, doing things we're not supposed to. No more attack of our very own, from our very own sin nature. No more, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I don't think there's going to be TV in heaven. Because we don't need it. Thank goodness. I'm going to get tired of all the commercials. We're going to delight in the greatness of our King. And while right now, those of us who are believers in Christ may seem like, compared to what the world expects, we, we look like a wreck. You know, oh, you're just, oh, you're weak. You're having, you, you, your religion is a crutch. We seem powerless. The truth is that in reality, we are all powerful. Because the almighty, all-powerful king has saved us. And it's only, he is the only one who can. And Isaiah is going to end with something that we must remember. Verse 24, he says, And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Now we, we look at that and we may think, what is he talking about, health? And, you know, oh, great, I'm not going to hurt anymore. I, you know, we're not going to get sick anymore. No, he's talking about a deeper sick. He's talking about spiritual sickness. This world is full of spiritual sickness. Everything, all the evil that's going on in the world is a result of spiritual sickness. It's a result of sin. I mean, we won't be sick when we're with him. We won't be sick physically or spiritually. Why? Because our sins are gone. 
Our sins are completely gone. Our tempt- the temptation is gone. It's all gone. Our happiness depends on this. And I'll be honest with you, our happiness on this earth depends on God forgiving our sins now. He promises to bear our guilt only if we trust in him through Jesus Christ. And it's a sense of acceptance by Christ that makes us into trusting, broken, and renewed people. And that is what we should be. So what do we do? First of all, we need to come to Christ. We need to trust Him fully with our lives. We need to look at what He has done. We need to marvel at what He has done. Look at what God has done in your life. Marvel at it. Isn't it amazing how how God has worked in our lives? What God has done for us? Isn't it amazing what God has done for our country? We need to marvel at that. We need to praise Him for what He has done. We also have to know that we are not sinners in Zion. We are not those who walk around acting like we are believers in Christ. But in reality, our souls are the pit of hell. We're not. And if you're not sure, then you need to come. You need to talk to me. Because we're supposed to have assurance of our salvation. There's no doubt that we're saved. We need to live as believers in Christ. Don't leave today unsure of your salvation. God wants you to be at that place where you openly trust in him. Fully. So he's going to let you get to that point on your own. Until you fully trust him. And then he's going to say, ah, now. Now I will arise. Now I can do something. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're watching on YouTube, please like this video as it will help in spreading this message into the global online community. Please consider subscribing to our page so that you will receive notices when we post new messages. If you're watching this on Rumble, please hit the Rumble button for this video so that the gospel can be spread into the Rumble community. Also, consider subscribing to our Rumble channel. You can also listen to our podcast on Amazon Music and Apple Podcasts. We hope you have a blessed day.